0: the Beatitudes. Aaron will explain that in a second. Aaron Ferguson, who is a missional community leader, he's a, a deacon in Chorus. Um, he preaches here frequently. He's going to take the first, and then I'll take the, the next two starting um, next week. Um, but we're looking at Matthew 5-3 today. It's on should be on page 809, or it'll be on the screen. If you're able, if you'd stand, and we, we read God's Word together, and then I'll pray for Aaron, and then he'll come up and, and preach God's Word. So Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Um, Aaron, can you come up here pray for you? Father, um, we're thankful for um, those that you've gathered here in our body. Um, I'm so thankful for Aaron and for Caitlin, um, for their heart for you, um, just how I have seen um, so much how they exemplify what Aaron's going to talk about here today. Um, we want to see this more and more in us, Lord. For us to see things as they really are, um, us in great need of you and not having what we need in and of ourselves, Lord. Um, work that in us and use our brother Aaron as he preaches today. Um, just give him a confidence in you as he stands up here and just takes on a um, just a... A weighty task um, Standing before you, standing before your people Um, Just use him I pray, and and just give him joy As he he proclaims your word Give us open, hungry hearts I pray, humble hearts Willing to receive, ready to receive In Jesus' name, amen Thank
1: you, Pastor Kevin Um, Good morning, cars Good to see you today. (laughs) Uh, Over the last several years, I've noticed kind of the emergence of this really niche genre of comedy, Christian satire. Uh, Not Christianized satire, uh, but satire that pokes fun at the church, the way we do church, uh, usually. Oftentimes uh, this kind of evangelical or reformed subculture uh, And by people from within this subculture it's, you know, Say what you want about um, comedians like John Crist Or websites like the Babylon Bee I know they have their own you know, flaws and failings uh, But when they've been at their best They kind of hold up a mirror and reveal to us uh, Some of the goofier things about American Christians as a group. They make light of the corniness of so much contemporary Christian music. They make uh, funny graphs about the relationship between the coffee and the lobby and the church's theology. Uh, they highlight kind of the, what's the best way to say it? Used car dealership architecture of modern church buildings. I could go on. You've seen the articles and the you know videos. But maybe the most common thing that they all pick on as a group is this churchy language that we have that's kind of become known as Christianese. And maybe you're here this morning, you're a Christian, and you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about when you say that. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're thinking, at least they're self aware enough to know if they do this. Um, That this. I watched a video uh, kind of making fun of this Christianese language the other day. Uh, Two ladies, they're hanging out at a restaurant they're waiting for. The rest of their group, they're hanging out, they're talking, and then, you know, their pastor walks up to meet them. The girl says, oh, hey, so good to see you, Reverend Brother Pastor Ted. Uh, How's your walk been this week? I pray that you have traveling mercies on your way back into town. The pastor says, you know, it's been well. I've really had a hedge of protection surrounding me on all sides. Good to see you two are spending some time with each other, life on life. (laughs) Yeah, it's been great. We're just waiting for the rest of our fellowship collective to get here. Uh, After breakfast, we're going to go do some soul winning. (laughs) I have to admit that even as I typed those sentences out, Uh, Microsoft Word just threw blue squiggly lines all over (laughs) the place. uh, You know, those words don't mean anything when you put them together like that, right? But that's Christianese. It's the language of our little subgroup. And uh, sometimes we can latch on to certain words or phrases. Uh, We can overuse them, even misuse them, to the point where we're not even sure what it is that we're talking about anymore, uh, let alone how hard that would be to understand if you weren't in our subgroup, you know, weren't in our churchy culture. And so I sat down last week to, to study this, beatitude, yeah, to, to study um, the Sermon on the Mount, and I just couldn't help but think that this is all the churchy words smashed into one verse. Um... You know, it sounds so spiritual on its surface, but what does it actually mean? The beatitude, you know, in its purest form, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, when was the last time that someone at your MC told you that they had been really poor in spirit this week? Um, I've never said that in my MC. I've never had anyone say it to me Uh, in any group that I've ever been in. But it sounds so spiritual And we would probably all say It's good to be poor in spirit We should all be poor in spirit Possible So let's dive into this Short little verse together I want to help us get a grasp On what exactly Jesus is saying And why we need to hear it And maybe this morning as much as ever Why we need to hear it As we go uh, We'll kind of take this beatitude and try to rephrase it piece by piece into something less Christianese, uh, more accessible to those of us, those of us inside and outside church. So Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, one of his greatest sermons, uh, with this section called the Beatitudes. Pastor Kevin said that in the welcome. Uh, and again, speaking of churchy words, there's another one. Beatitude, what the heck is that? I teach sixth graders uh, at a private school, as my side job, it's very fun. If you were one of my sixth graders and I asked you what's a beatitude, you might raise your hand and say something like, "Um, it's an attitude that we need to be having. Or if you really just wanted to like, stop the learning process for a few minutes, you might say, It's when bees get an attitude with you And try and sting you And then, you know, we would all laugh for five minutes or whatever Uh, But, neither of those are actually the case The word beatitude, it just simply comes from this Latin word that means blessing So when you're flipping through Matthew, you come to the beatitudes And you see that heading, the beatitudes Um, You can think, this is Jesus' pronouncement of blessings and we'll start there, with the word blessed, or blessed, or just blessed, however you say it. Uh, let me let you in a little bit on how the sermon sausage is made. Most of the time, when I'm studying through a passage, I'll find, I'll highlight, you know, a key word, you know, that needs a lot of attention. What does it mean when Jesus says the word hell? What is Paul talking about when he says the word head? These are important words. So I break open a few commentaries. I look up in a Greek dictionary and I find that word. Or I fire up the Bible software and do a study. And I'd like to tell you that the word blessing, blessed, blessed here, is really simple like that. I shouldn't oversimplify those other words. They're they're very important and they have a lot of meaning. Um, I can't just crack open, or I could, I could crack open a Greek dictionary, find this word for blessing, and come up here and tell you that it just means happy. Which in its most literal translation does mean that. That's true. But I would be greatly shortchanging you if I left it As that, just that Because when Jesus' disciples And the crowds hear this word Blessing There's a whole concept From the Old Testament That is being called back to Think about some of those key Moments in the Old Testament In Genesis and Deuteronomy When God creates humanity In Genesis 1 He blesses them Sharing his rule with them. Making them fruitful. In Genesis 12. When God calls Abraham. He blesses him. And says that he's going to make Abraham's family into a great nation. And give them a land. Give them a home. And make them a blessing to the rest of the world. And then... When God makes a covenant with his people of Israel in Deuteronomy, uh, he promises them that their obedience would result in blessing. Following the law provides a blessing, and conversely, disobedience results in a curse. So you see, blessing is not just a word that you can look up in the dictionary and be like, I got it, that's it. We got to look through whole Bible, what all is encompassed in this really important word. It's a word that is a theme about who is and who isn't one of God's people, about what his people's responsibilities are, and also what their reward will be, and how God is glorified in our world, and who will be carrying out his mission. And then Even on top of that, as Darren preached to us last week from the Psalms, we are often called as people to turn and bless God through our worship and our praise. It's a whole lot more than mere happiness. And it's a whole lot more than an Instagram post or a hashtag or a song title or a tattoo or a vibe, whatever that is. This is how uh, Tim Mackey, from the Bible Project, put it on one of his podcasts recently. He said, a blessing is a potent way to evoke, distribute, or celebrate the well-being that comes from experiencing the fullness of God's favor, especially in the areas of fertility, authority, dominion, wholeness, peace, and rest. That's kind of a lot. Um, But experiencing the fullness of God's favor. That's more than happiness. And that's kind of the idea that I'd like to, if we can boil it down, you know, use that idea. Experiencing the fullness of God's favor. While at the same time keeping in mind the rest of the themes and promises that go along with this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's rephrase that just a little bit now that we kind of have a deeper understanding of blessing. The poor in spirit are now experiencing the fullness of God's favor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then next, let's move on, try to understand this idea of the poor in spirit. Similarly to blessing, poor in spirit is More than the sum of its parts. It's more than something you can flip through a dictionary and just look up. It's an identity that's developed throughout the whole Bible up until this point. And I'd like to kind of camp out on this phrase for most of our time here this morning. Uh, To be completely honest, again, uh, this was really, this really was a tough Phrase to figure out. There seem to be two different camps of understanding the more I study. The first said that to be poor in spirit means to be spiritually and morally bankrupt due to our sin. And then the second group said that to be poor in spirit means that you are, quite literally, economically. Deprived. I went back and forth, meditating, meditating, studying, praying. I just really felt like though neither of those descriptions quite cut it. Um, regarding the latter, that it means simple—not simple, but just um, economic poverty. Uh, if that's what Matthew meant, he could have just used. The same version of the beatitude that Luke does in his version just says, blessed are the poor. It's from uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. The fact that Matthew adds the in spirit doesn't deny that element of poverty, but it should also lead us to believe that there's more going on when he says this. Uh, And then the former idea of being spiritually, morally bankrupt. is a very common understanding of this beatitude, uh, especially in a lot of the kind of theological circles that we run in as a church. But here's why I wasn't quite convinced. As we look at the rest of this list of beatitudes, I don't want us to see a checklist of moral strivings Stuff that we need to roll out of bed every day And make sure I was poor in spirit today Make sure I was pure in heart I want us to look at These beatitudes and see Jesus So to the rest of the guys on the Preaching team I'm going to try really hard Not to steal your sermons the next few weeks But really quick If you've got your Bible still open on that page look At that list Jesus is the perfect mourner he is the perfectly meek one. He is the hungriest to have justice and righteousness. The perfectly merciful. The purest in heart. The perfect peacemaker. And he faces the pinnacle of persecution. So seeing the Beatitudes in this light, I think, should make sense. If this whole sermon is about what life is like in the kingdom of God... Then it makes sense that the life and the values of the king are the first things out of his mouth. So Jesus is the epitome of the foreign spirit. What does that mean? It can't mean that he's spiritually bankrupt due to sin. Jesus was perfect. He obeyed the father in all aspects. So then what does it mean? Sometimes I think the best way to understand is to put the the positive and the negative next to each other to highlight the contrast. Um, so let's let's do that in a couple instances. Uh, one commentator said this. He said, "We need to remind ourselves that each
0: beatitude is a reversal of cultural
1: values, especially in Jesus's culture, but even still in ours." The self-dependent or the wealthy oppressor is at odds with the economy of the kingdom. That is, the poor in spirit. So like I said, I went back and forth with these commentators, eventually reached out to um, a seminary mentor of mine. He helped me settle on this idea for describing the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to experience Such great need That God is the only one You can rely on This encompasses More than the the moral spiritual It encompasses more Than the economic They go together It's to be in such great need That God is the only one We can ultimately rely on To be faithful For our help and our hope So how is Jesus of Nazareth poor in spirit? Put yourselves in his sandals for a minute. Born to to young unmarried parents, we read this in Matthew earlier during Advent, had to flee from his homeland because his own king was willing to kill every baby boy in the region to destroy him. Probably learned a trade growing up, like the rest of his community, would have lived hand to mouth, only getting by on what they could produce. Only to turn around and have that stolen by the Roman Empire and their crooked tax collectors. By his own admission, Jesus was a homeless traveler during his ministry. And yes, Jesus was fully God, but at the same time, fully human, and not just a human, but a human filled and empowered by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, constantly living, to obey his Father and fulfill the mission that he had been given. And Jesus, the Spirit-filled, divine human, regularly. Withdrew to be by himself to pray to his Father, praying through sorrow and fear and pain. Jesus lived his life constantly in the face of needs so great that he could only rely on his Father for his ultimate hope. Jesus lived a life that was born in spirit. And now you might say, well, it's all well and good, but I'm not Jesus. I don't have those same living conditions or life circumstances. I don't have his same mission. And it's true. Uh, Most of us, not all of us, but most of us probably don't support ourselves being able to consume only that which we produce. And none of us, We'll ever have to die for the sins of everyone. But this may be why, one of the reasons, Luke provides us with a couple of parables that mirror our world. And contrast the poor in spirit with the rich and the proud. One parable is more on that earthy side, one parable is more on that spiritual side. Let's read them together. On the more earthy side in Luke chapter 16, we see this set up. There is a rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, uh, just so we're clear, the overall point of this specific parable is not a teaching on the poor in spirit. But it certainly illustrates what Jesus is talking about in our passage, in our beatitude. We see on the one hand, the rich man, he's good. He's good. He's got his life figured out. He's got the coolest clothes. He eats the fanciest food. He feasts sumptuously every day, for goodness sake. Uh, He's never had a need in his whole life that wasn't swiftly met. He's a self-sufficient success. He's achieved the American dream. Sorry to get all up in your business all of a sudden. But it's a reality that in our day, so many of us are more rich man and less Lazarus. It's just our reality. And then looking at Lazarus on the other side of the parable, literally, economically has nothing poor, covered in sores. forget about feasting sumptuously any day of the week he'd just be happy to consume a crumb he's got no one that cares for him, he's just been dropped at the gate of this guy he has to live every moment of his life trusting that God will send someone to meet his needs And then, in the end, to which of these characters does the care and the comfort of the kingdom come to? To the poor in spirit. And then, that second parable, just a couple chapters later, kind of on the more spiritual side. In Luke 18, Jesus tells us a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. They're sharing the temple together. Let's read it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Will be exalted. And so this Pharisee, he shows up to the temple, possibly in a purple garment of his own. And he's the richest man around, spiritually. The worst part is that he knows it. He prays, Oh God, thank you so much. It's like an acceptance speech at an award show. Thank you so much. For making me an awesome Pharisee, not an evil, treacherous tax collector like that guy. Thanks for giving me all this money that I get to give away. Thanks for giving me so much food that I can fast from. It's the definition of haughtiness. And then, of course, the tax collector. He is a lying, thieving thug. He's a sellout and a snake. He's got no friends or family or community. He's the kind of guy that if he texted you and said he was coming over to your MC, you would make sure to put out plasticware instead of silverware. He's got nothing spiritually, and he knows it. Yet he still prays. God, I've got nothing. No family, no friends to vouch for me. No good deeds to put before you. I'm a sinner. But I'm so desperately in need of you. Would you give me mercy? Would you show me forgiveness? And at the end of the parable... To whom does Jesus say that the grace and the justification of the kingdom came? To the poor in spirit. I don't want to belabor too much more, uh, but I do think that this line from the hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, it sums up the attitude of someone who is poor in spirit. It should be on the screen. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to the cross I cling Naked, come to thee for dress Helpless, look to thee for grace Foul I to the fountain fly Wash me, Savior, or I die So let's revisit our beatitude Blessed are the poor in spirit For theirs is the kingdom of heaven Then we said The poor in spirit are experiencing The fullness of God's favor For theirs is the kingdom of heaven now, let's say those in utter dependence on God are now experiencing the fullness of his favor for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so that final component of this beatitude, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let's take a quick amount of time to clarify what Jesus is talking about when he says this. Um, the kingdom is a theme and a concept that we talk about a lot here at carpus Um For crying out loud, we've called this whole sermon series Through the Gospel of Matthew Our King His Kingdom And just as A point of clarification um, We use the terms Kingdom, Kingdom of God Kingdom of Heaven Interchangeably Matthew, in his style He prefers the phrase Kingdom of Heaven But conceptually Know that this is interchangeable with the kingdom of God When other authors say that Or when we just say the kingdom That's a shorthand um, With that said, here's how Pastor Jeff Described the kingdom of God for us a few Sundays ago He said this The kingdom of God is any place That is under the active rule of Jesus' reign And that's where I want to start from When talking about About this beatitude Um, I tell my 6th graders Very often that Jesus' Primary mission Was to bring God's kingdom From heaven to earth And you might look at me And you might say that's an oversimplification Uh, You're leaving out Some important stuff But I am so convinced That Jesus bringing The kingdom encompasses Everything else We talk about when we talk about the gospel. For Jesus to bring us under his rule, we must be renewed as a people by the forgiveness of our sins that Jesus secured when he died on the cross. Not just us, but our world has to be remade. Has to be remade by that life-giving power of the spirit that Jesus Unleashed when he rose from the dead. And when Jesus' people live under his rule in any place, his goodness, his grace, his justice, his righteousness, they transform communities of people. Transform communities of people. Um, I spent a lot of time racking my brain About the best way to say this Um, And I ended up With a word that might chafe us a little bit Um, So give me just a chance To explain But every local church Ought to be A kingdom colony And yeah I recognize that that word Colony does have some baggage To it And yeah local churches Ought to be Outposts or embassies Of the kingdom of God But more than Those things more than Representations or Representatives or Pick your analogy More than that These Are supposed to be places Where the kingdom of God Launches out into the world Into those parts Of our world that are not Yet under the active rule of Jesus When it comes to this idea Here's the key difference I want to I highlight Between God's kingdom and the empires of our world When earthly empires colonize They assimilate with violence They use the sword to threaten people into conformity when God's kingdom comes to our world, we're integrated as a person, a whole person, into a family, not violently, but voluntarily, by serving others and extending them kindness. Not to look and speak and act the same as each other, but to display the beauty of God's creativity through the world. And not for the increased power of an emperor, but so that the righteousness and justice of God covers the face of the earth as waters cover the sea. Chorus and every church ought to be kingdom colonies where people see flowing from them the goodness of God's rule. Let's reconstruct our beatitude, having looked at all of these three parts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's how I think we should understand this. Those in utter dependence on God are now experiencing the fullness of his faith, because there is a place for them under God's good and gracious rule. And I can... Feel the look that some of you might be giving me right now because you are listening closely to how I phrased that. Those in under-dependence are now able to experience God's favor. And you're thinking something like, Aaron, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't fit at all with my experience. I've been looking for a job for months or I've been overworked For months my elderly parent is stuck in the hospital or rehab me or my family my close friend they're battling severe illness I've been hurt I've been abandoned by my church for crying out loud our whole world is on the brink of war with itself and however you're filling in that blank or asking that question I want to bring our time to a close by responding to that feeling or that question. And I need you to know this, and I need you to believe this. This promise of the kingdom of heaven is the only beatitude promise in the present tense. Mourners will be comforted. Meek will inherit the earth. Hungry and thirsty will be satisfied. Merciful will receive mercy. The pure will see God. The peacemakers will be called children of God. All of those promises are future-oriented, except the first and the last, which is the same. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is, as in... Currently, right now. There's a phrase that we use a lot around here when we talk about the kingdom of God. We say that it is already and not yet. It's already been established. 2,000 years ago, Jesus declared that his kingdom was at hand and he established it on the cross, revealed its power when he rose from the dead. It's already taken root in our world. Yet at the same time, it is not fully arrived. And it won't be until that last day when Jesus returns and sets everything right. Right now, we live between the already and the not yet. In a world with pain and pandemics. And injuries and injustices. And if you're not sure what to make of this meantime, you're not alone. The author of the book of Hebrews was trying to help people answer that same question. Here's what they wrote in Hebrews chapter 2. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is, we don't see a world in line with the kingdom of God fully. But we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. cars the Bible tells us we're living in a kingdom that is already founded, but not yet fully realized. But that doesn't mean God has forgotten about the but for now. But for now, we see the king of that kingdom, the king who is good and who is gracious, the king who would become poor in spirit, who would suffer and who would die for us so that we could have the hope, we could have hope in the but for now. Friends, it's this king who brings the hope and the reality of God's not yet into the right now, into the but for now. It's this king who asks you, who asks us to trust him and to follow him and to hope in him. Let's pray. Father, uh, you are good, and you're gracious, and you're generous in how you bless us, and rich in mercy towards us, and uh, we, are poor in spirit, we're so deeply in need of you for so many things. God, we long together for that day when your kingdom is fully here. God, I've got dinner plans tonight, but I pray that, to, that even like today, that, that might be, today might be that day. We pray that, God, you would end wars and sicknesses and death in our world. God, as we wait uh, patiently, give us strength to hold on to Jesus. God, we thank you for the blessing of his life and his death, and his resurrection. Would we remember those things and not take them for granted? Father, be with us the rest of our morning as we worship you. Um, Give us unity with each other, um, at your table, around your son. Uh, It's in his name that we pray. Amen.